Dame Stephanie Shirley is 88 years old and an icon of ethical business. It didn't seem right to introduce her with just one story, so instead, I'll give you six. Stephanie came to England when she was just five years old, and she and her sister boarded a train alone from Austria to London as part of the Kinder Transport Programme. She was one of 10,000 Jewish children voluntarily given up by her parents, with the hope that their kids would escape Nazi Europe alive. I decided to make mine a life that was worth saving. And then I just got on with it. In 1962, at the age of 29, Dame Stephanie, well, just Stephanie then, decided to start a software company. People laughed at me, Damien. I mean, you can't sell software. In 1962, it was given away free with the hardware, and certainly not by women. She had an idea for a company that was ahead of its time and an idea for how to run it that was truly revolutionary. The first step was to get clients. When her letters soliciting business went unreturned, her husband suggested she make a slight change. What if she signed her letters Steve instead of Stephanie? so as to get through the door before anyone realized that he was a she. From the beginning, the women who worked for her company worked from home, and in the hours that fit around their responsibilities for their children and family. I really wanted to open doors for the many people like myself who were either planning or had already family commitments. When Dame Stephanie sold her company, she made 70 of her employees millionaires. It took me... 11 years to make co-ownership happen. Now, you'd think it would be very easy to give a small company away, but it isn't. And finally, number six, Dame Stephanie has given more than £67 million to charity. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, of course, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. Dame Stephanie Shirley, or Dame Steve, built a billion-dollar business in software. Her company programmed a black-box flight recorder for the Concorde and employed thousands of women programmers who work from home on their own schedules. So many things touted as business innovations today are ones Dame Stephanie pioneered 60 years ago. I don't usually get too nervous during interviews, but with Dame Stephanie, it's the only response. Dame Stephanie Shirley, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. When you started your software company in 1962, one of the foundational ideas you had was that work could be done by busy women with dependents. What do you wish businesses would realize about employees' work? What do I wish is that business would trust their employees more fully and basically rely on them to do their best work at all times. We're not always innovative. We're not always in the right mood to uh, be, be very creative, but we can always do professional work and our quality of work should never fall below a certain uh, acceptable minimum. When I started, I wasn't thinking very commercially Uh, I first started with the idea of a charity, and I went to the charity commission and found out how to start a charity. Um, And then I realized that that very, very important thing, that the 
concept that I had of women returners, as they're now called, um, having capacity to do creative work in, in software uh, really depended on it being commercially sustainable. And to have a charity, no matter how large or successful, would, would never get the respect that I was looking for for women's work. Um, I think I am a feminist, certainly indeed, um, though not in word. Uh, when I started, feminism was considered to be very anti-male, which I assure you I am not. And I really wanted to present women at a professional level um, and open doors for the many people like myself who were either planning or had already family commitments. Intrinsically, you're obviously creative. And I'm struck by just how creative you would have had to have been to succeed. You had to change your name. I mean, this is a well-told story, but from Stephanie to Steve, just to get into meetings, disguising the part-time nature of staff. So I guess that was a bit of you know, jiggery-pokery in order for people not to understand what you were doing. There isn't one creative fix that got your company off the ground. It's, it's dozens. I mean, you must be, and you must have been, a very creative person. Did you have a philosophy for navigating a world that wasn't built for women who work? Certainly I did. But no one had told me what one wasn't supposed to do in business. So I was able to just go ahead and do it. And... I haven't been to university. Uh, I have a maths degree, but I took that at evening classes. And I miss desperately that sort of structure that people who've been through tertiary education can really, you know, there's seven different ways of doing this or the, the three subsets of this. And, and I can't think that way. Um, my innovation comes sometimes as I sleep. There's not much rhyme or reason about where it comes from. And I don't think anybody knows where innovation comes from. I talk a lot about team working and the need to work with actually diverse teams, but always teams. There's very little that you do by yourself these days, except for innovation, because that is a solitary activity. To have a new idea and then to make it happen, that takes an individual who then surrounds themselves with people who take it forward. Because the sad thing is, in my business, the, the bigger it got, the more successful it got, the less I enjoyed it. I'm not a, a corporate person. If you had a good idea, how do you hold on to that idea in a company and make sure that it's, um, that it's actually delivered or pushed through the way that you'd like to see it? Well, it doesn't necessarily come out the way in which I'd originally envisaged it. Okay. But if you are listening to other people and taking their suggestions on board, it may finish up quite differently. Um, and that doesn't worry me, and I don't think it should. It's what starts it off. This is why the first in the field has a chance to, to make a mark, which is certainly what I... I'm interested in doing. I like to feel that I've made a difference in the world. I want to talk a bit about social good because um, this is clearly your focus today, but I think it's always been your focus. And supporting women was your company's founding principle and probably your founding principle. And a few years in, you had this opportunity to sell your company, but you decided against it because you were worried about the fact that it might dilute your mission. 
Can you tell us about that decision? Well, I was delighted when we had a a takeover bid from a a long-term customer. So they were people that we knew very well. We knew the type of work that they would provide. I was getting landed with, with the tax and the insurance and the enormous HR problems and all the sort of administrative tasks that went worthwhile delegating to anybody else landed on my desk. Um, so I was not content with the way of operating. And the idea of getting some capital in uh, and getting access to a bit more professional management appealed to me enormously. So I went into it with wild enthusiasm, um, started to take on staff uh, on the basis that we were going to have some capital behind us, paid employed staff, which is what we always needed. And then there was an instance when I was considering um, running a creche for the women. When I mentioned that, the takeover company, they sort of said, oh, no, 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 you don't want to be doing doing that. And and that's what I said, well, I've already started to try and register it. Um, No, you don't want to do that. That's just a waste of time. And I sort of realized that um, the takeover, yes, would relieve me of a lot of unpleasant tasks that, that, or I thought it would might, um, but it was going to also mean that somebody could tell me what to do. (laughs) And as an entrepreneur, I'd got into the habit of not being told what to do um, and following my own gut feelings. I caught off the deal to, to some embarrassment. And, um, you know, if you don't use your moral authority on small issues, how can you possibly use them on the big ones? Yeah. Looking back, I learned a lot from that uh, and thereafter um, brushed off any approaches from outside because I'd got another idea. I'm full of ideas. <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur. I dash off in all directions. But I had the idea that... Because we we were quite harsh employers in a way, we had moved payroll onto the purchase ledger so that staff were paid much more slowly than if they were employed uh, on salary. And so they really suffered from that slow payment and helped us remove most of our cash flow problems when we, when we started to do that. Because they were helping us with that, it began to be obvious to me that I thought I wanted to take the company into co-ownership. Now, you'd think it would be very easy to give a small company away, but it isn't. Because if the company is not worth anything, nobody wants it anyway. And if it is worth something, the taxman wants a slice of of the gift. I had no money apart from what was in the company, and that was pretty measly. It took me... 11 years to make co-ownership happen. Um, And that's a long time to spend on some idealist thing. And I I didn't achieve everything I wanted to. I wanted to take it into full co-ownership. I mean, I did manage to get it to 24% staff owned. So as as a company is growing, how do you center social good? How do you try to push that through the company? Well, most important things in a company take years rather than months or weeks. Um, And it took us 18 months to write what we called a charter. Again, I think we were in front of the curve. And I was trying to set down what the company was all about and its values. And I did, thinking we might talk about this, um, market in uh, my book, Let It Go, 
um, values such as professional excellence, growth, economic and psychological reward, integrated diversity, universal ethics, goodwill, and enthusiasm. I mean, all our proposals used to finish up with, you know, with enthusiastically looking forward to working with you. Um, and th those were the qualities that we became inbred. They were up in every office, and we, we had small offices all over the place. Our competitors, if they'd wanted to know what made us succeed, could have read that because it was public information. And for many years, that really drove the ethos of the company. And I mean, what you were just talking about, again, just strikes me as openness. You were prepared to put things on the wall that the competition could read. And there is this fundamental openness to, to you, I guess, and to the company you have that not only were you hiring women at, at a time when many weren't, but also gay and transgender employees, again, way ahead of the curve. Yes, um, it, it's a basic thing with me. When I was a child, I used to sort of think, why isn't the world more fair? And as I matured, um, you realize, well, it's up to me to make it more fair. That, of course, is what philanthropists are doing all the time, trying to make the world a fairer place. And in business, that's not a bad thesis to be driving by, mixing metaphors. <laughs> um, but it, it, it served me well. It, it was a wonderful company and eventually, eventually made me very wealthy. But a lot of that wealth you decided to, to give away. I understand it was something like £67 million that you've in, in total given away to charity. Yes. I try to do my philanthropy like a venture philanthropist, like a business. I, I, I do feasibility studies. I do impact assessments. Um, I work to a mission, which was a very simple one, to stick to things that I know and care about. And there are only two, really, um, information technology uh, and autism, which was my late son's condition. Um, and so I stick to those two areas so that after a bit I stopped supporting information technology because lots of people were doing that, whereas I'm a major supporter of autism because not many people are, are interested or prepared to sort of invest in it. So that was the, the subject. Um, and I've always been a, a researcher of one sort or another, so it's always been pioneering stuff. I never do projects that, no matter how worthy, if they already exist elsewhere, I, I'll help somebody else grow, but um, I'm not going to do another one. Are there companies today that you look at that you think, oh, wow, this is exciting. This is the space I would move into as a first player. I don't look that way anymore, except in the IT and in the autism field. I, I fund research in the autism field, so there are a lot of firsts there that I've been part of. I served on an American um, autistic charity board for many years, and they had done an autism brain bank. And when I started Autistica in this country, Great Britain, I thought a, a brain bank here would be a good place to start. And it, it was quite pricey. I mean, it, it took, took a lot of setting up. Um, but it was a first in the UK. 
and it's now the largest in the world because the American um, brain bank collapsed at one time through power failures or something like that. To have been part of setting up the autism brain bank is to me a matter of great pride. And, And for those who don't know, what is a brain bank? It's a collection of specimens of brains, very small specimens on you know, tiny glass slides, which are recorded as from whence they come. Is it from a, somebody like my son who had no speech and was epileptic? Which part of the brain was it taken from? And so on. So that um, people all over the world can, can use those specimens in a non-destructive way. In fact, I think there's something like 17,000 experiments have used the autism brain bank material. So it's a facilitator for a lot of other people. I want to talk about mental health because in your book, in your autobiography, you talk about your own mental health struggles. Can you talk a little bit about what you were facing and how, how you found your way through it, if you have? One of the things I always feel in business is that you have to understand a little bit about people's home life because it's when there is stress at home and stress at work that people are likely to really have mental health problems. Certainly that is what happened with me. I had been driving a medium-sized company, doing a lot of selling, driving 17,000 miles a year, and caring for an extremely difficult child. And people ask, how can you do that when each of those tasks is is what was considered a full-time task? It was simply that for many years they balanced each other. The only time I forgot my son Giles was when I was at work. I am a workaholic. The only time I forget work was when I was with Giles. And uh, he's dead now, so that's all all that's really left for me in my life is work. But um, I digress there. Um, What happened when he was about 13 and puberty hit and he became even more difficult and I did break down. I just ceased to function. I was in hospital for a month and was out of work for a year, which is a long time for me. And that was what initiated Giles having to leave home because it was clear that I just could not manage anymore. Um, And I've learned a lot about that. I've learned to be much more selfish about myself, to have a sort of healthy selfishness, to look after my own mind, body and spirit, to ensure my own self-preservation. And I've learned that the hard way. And when I talk to usually other women, because it's mainly women I'm speaking with, I sort of say, you, you, you do need to be selfish to that degree and make sure that you can have the resilience to cope, and I'm I'm very resilient. Um, it's what entrepreneurs are. People uh, remember us for our successes, but actually, it's our ability to deal with failure that uh, uh, makes that success. Certainly, I I can deal with most things, uh, but I'm now much more careful about it. I, I exercise. I uh, I've stopped smoking. All sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, to, to your younger self, if you were the CEO of the company looking at Dame 
Steve Shirley suffering, what would you have done differently now to help that employee? Well, first of all, I think you have to know what's going on, and that takes some energy and effort. I think there have to be designated people who are trained in mental health, um, who are available to help individuals when they think they need it, uh, without anybody else knowing very practical things. One can discuss different forms of working, more flexibility, moving to part-time, moving location, all the sorts of things that might reduce the work pressures, because you can't do anything about the family pressures. Um, And it, it does require a lot of sort of personal skills, I think, to do it properly. It's not just following a formula. The whole conversation around working from home and work-life balance is becoming much more critical than it ever was for both men and women. Looking at what's happening now in work because of the pandemic and remembering the innovations that you made decades ago, what do you think employers need to know about how to create a better work environment? Yes, I was very much motivated for women And if you look historically what happened to women in the Great War or in World War II, they made enormous strides forward. Uh, But at the end of the war, they slipped back into their previous position and the men came and took the jobs that the women had been doing successfully. And I suspect that is a tendency that is going to happen now because I notice that Staff are wanting to work at home, at least certainly the women are, some men as well, Um, but employers are really wanting to be present, to be seen to be working, um, to have the the benefits of of community working, of community thinking, of of sparking ideas off off each other. And so most of the organisations that I'm dealing with have decided on a sort of hybrid working where they decide two or three days a week they are working in the office and three or two days a week they're working at home. And then they, they partner up with another organisation that works in the opposite way. And so that's really using the, the office accommodation very effectively and uh, reducing those costs and giving the staff what they want. It seems a happy compromise, but it is a compromise because I think with a global community, it's much more natural to think of people just working wherever they are. I'm amazed how people talk about Zoom and Skype, but I was demonstrating vision phones in 1987. These things are not as new as you think, and and (laughs) driving change takes a long, long time. That doesn't seem to alter. And you, you spent your life trying to make a better world. I mean, maybe you didn't intentionally start out like that, but that that is the conclusion of how you've spent your life, I think. Um, how would you like us to take that baton? And what would you ask people today to, to carry on from where you started? I would exhort people to find their own solutions to the problems that are local to them, that are dear to them, that are within their capacity, not trying to um, solve what's going on in Ukraine, but solve the difficulty that the guy has around the corner because he never seems to go out at all and we don't know how he's doing. These are things that have to be dealt with locally, personally. And if you start doing that, you begin to be able to learn to walk in other people's shoes. The culture has to learn by its own mistakes. I I make 
and have made lots of mistakes, but I don't repeat them. I think that's what I'm always trying to do, to do make new mistakes. I can't imagine any other way than taking risks, to be honest. Um, you take the risk or die. <laughs> I think that's a perfect ending. <laughs> um, Dame Steve Shirley, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to be here. And that's our episode for today. A massive thank you to Dame Stephanie Shirley for showing us the way forward. And if you'd like to know more about her life, and you should, she has an autobiography called Let It Go, My Extraordinary Story. And it is a fascinating history. If you don't already have a WeTransfer Pro account, we want to give you one. Well, at least a few of you. So check out we.tl forward slash Dame Steve. That's we.tl slash Dame Steve for a free WeTransfer Pro account. Our gift to you for making it all the way here. And if we run out, don't worry, there'll be some more next week. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby with editing from Audrey No and Elise Hugh. And sound engineering, of course, is done by Mark Bush. Our We Transfer creative producer is Cara O'Shea. And you can find Influence on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you're enjoying the show, tell a friend, tell your mum, rate us, leave us a review. It all helps. Influence is a podcast from We Transfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume.